oftentimes a child will accuse an adult of, uh, of sexual misconduct uh, and describe it in, in fairly vivid detail. And somebody will look at the police reports and look at the allegation and say, how could this be a fabrication? How would this child even know about these things uh, in order to make up a story like this? And the answer uh, that we found in many cases is that children learn about sexual matters from the media. Uh, that in today's society, more than at any time in our history, children at a very young age have acquired a very sophisticated understanding of sexual matters. And they learn this from television, they learn this from movies, they learn this from magazines, they learn this from the radio, they learn this from stories that they hear at school and discussions that they have with their peers. And when you combine this, this understanding of, of sexual matters uh, with, in many cases, a motive on the part of the child to uh, want to get the, the accused person out of the home or want to get uh, a retribution against the accused person, uh, the child will uh, uh, draw on this frame of reference that they've developed from the media in order to fabricate a story. When you're moving money around all these different ways, trying to make it seem seasoned, you're also probably doing like tax evasion and stuff like that too. Because I mean, I don't know, you got all these chunks of money going places that... Oh, listen, they can hit you with money laundering, they can hit you that's, with wire fraud. That's what I mean, there's, there's these peripheral fraud. crimes that are, that are happening. Is there if two people are involved? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 actually I think it has to be three people, three? but but it doesn't it it really makes no difference at all. Yeah. I mean, they're they're listen, they're going to come up with a crime that you fit. Mm -hmm. The 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 laws are so liberal at this point. For instance, they were trying to hit me with like forty or fifty. I think it was like fifty something million dollars in uh, uh, fifty or fifty five million dollars, like in in. Uh, money laundering mm -hmm. and I was like I don't what money laundering like to me money laundering was like drug dealers uh, trying to take dirty money and then put it in the bank and then somehow or another say that they made that money doing something else uh -huh. and I was like what money laundering I had money wired into the bank and then I took the money out and they were, they were like right every dollar you take out of the bank that's dirty money is money laundering I'm like what hell how else was I going to get the money they're like, it doesn't matter. The moment you convert it to cash, it's money laundering. If it's if it's ill-gotten funds. Well, I mean, the money laundering for $55 million is like a 30-year life. I mean, 30-year sentence. It's outrageous. So even this thing, the down payment fraud, I mean, that could be considered money laundering. Yeah. Couldn't it? They could. It, it could money, money laundering, bank fraud wire fraud because you're doing this in order to get the bank to wire money to the title company so that you can make that money yep. wire fraud yep. you're like you know you, you would think what well, i didn't know that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter they're going to get you on on you know they're going to get you on something you're you're breaking multiple bank fraud related 
uh, charge or bank fraud related uh, laws at that point. Yeah. So, you know. I guess when you have so many charges hanging over your head, you're going to have to plead one of them because yeah, if you go to trial, I mean, that could be game over. They're going to get you. It's, it's, it's over. But you can't go to the old, you can't go to, can't go to trial on these things. Mm. You just can't do it. It's just stupidity to try and go to trial, especially if you're guilty. Look, if you're not guilty and you go to trial, you got about a 50% chance of being found guilty. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, people don't realize that, but the, the federal, all of the federal statutes are in the government's favor. Now, if you were in the state, the states are more reasonable. The feds will put people, they can put people up there that you told Ben that I said this. You won't testify, but Ben can testify what you told him that I said. And you're like, that's hearsay. Right. That's perfectly legitimate. So Ben and four other people can get on the stand and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyler said that Matt said this. Mm-hmm. And guess what? That's, that's okay. It's okay. And you're going, I've never talked to this guy and I didn't tell Tyler anything. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We got four guys that are going to say you did it. And the fact is, is that most people feel like if you were indicted, you did something wrong. I, I, know, I know a guy named Andrew Levinson. When they were doing, going through voir dire, you know, voir dire is, is the, the process that they go through to determine if someone can sit on a jury. While they were going through all of his jurors, one of the jurors, uh, when his defense lawyer stood up and said, look, can, can you be impartial, sit on the jury and be impartial and judge my, my client? Uh, the actual juror said, I don't know. Most of them say, yeah, of course, of course. They know that's the right thing to say. He goes, yeah, I don't know. And the guy goes, he goes, you don't know? Why don't you know? He goes, well, he was indicted on 54 counts. He did something wrong. <laughs> that's how most of them think. They think if you're sitting in that chair, you did something wrong. And that's true. You may have done something wrong. The real tragedy of the system is this, is that you may have done something wrong and you'll get found guilty. And at that point, all the jury has done is said, yes, your honor, we believe that he broke the law. And they get up and they leave. They don't get to determine what your sentence is. If you polled most juries, 99% of them would be like, yeah, he broke the law, but you know, it's a white collar crime and he'll probably just get probation. It's not that big of a deal. It was a couple hundred thousand dollars. Nobody got hurt. He's going to get probation. Of course, a month later, two months later, they read in the newspaper, the guy got five years or he got 20 years or he got 10 years. And then they go, oh my God, he, well, I don't understand. What's the big deal? I mean, he was, if you'd seen the, what he did, it wasn't a big deal. Right. That's why you don't get to make that determination. Stop doing drugs. And the judge will be like, fuck, this guy's just, he's unsupervisable. Like, we can't get him to behave. And they'll say, you know what, all right, we're just going to take you off paper. It's just a waste of time at this point. Well, I had actually thought about doing that. I thought, you know, if I would, if I get out, violate, 
go straight back to prison. I'll go back for a year or so and I could get them to quash my paper. The problem with that is that that won't work with someone who has restitution. If you have a massive amount of restitution, they'll just put you back on paper. They're not going to quash your paper because you're unsupervisable. Now, I know several guys who've done it. Um, for instance, John Boziak, which is a guy I wrote a story about. And uh, he's going to be in a couple of the, uh, of the grind uh, vlogs. And uh, he just did uh, Concrete and uh, MSCS Media. And um, I'm going to do a podcast with him. And just a bunch of stuff's going on with him. He actually violated, went back to prison, and they quashed his paper. I think he had like a year or two worth of uh, supervised release. He got out. He, he got in trouble again. They grabbed him. Um, he never got charged, but he knew inter just interaction with the police can get you violated. Now, they didn't charge him, but he was afraid that he might get charged, so he took off on the run. And um, when they caught up with him and he went back in front of the judge, the judge said, look, I'm going to, you know, you're going to get like six months and I'm just going to quash your paper. You're, you're unsupervisable. We keep catching, you keep taking off and getting caught here and caught there. And you're just, you're just not going to behave. So they quashed his paper. And I know lots of guys that have come back to prison, like I'll see them leave, they come back and they're like, yeah, man, it's great. I'm coming back for six months, but when I get out, I'm done with paper. So it's not going to work with me. Um, and here's the thing about being on papers. A lot of people don't understand is that you don't really have the same rights as everybody else anymore. Your probation officer can, 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 basically violate you for any reason at all. I can be violated for anything. If I'm caught, um, let's say, hanging out with a, a felon, they can, they can if, if I don't have permission to be around that person, they can violate me, send me back to jail for a year, 18 months. I know a guy who was hiding money. Like, he was paying his restitution, but he was hiding money. They violated him. He got 18 months. Um, I know a guy, I know about four guys, but I'll give you one example. There was this guy, uh, a black guy, super nice guy. He'd been in jail for like 10 years for a, a drug conspiracy. Well, then he got out. He was in Florida. He got out and he got caught in a vehicle. Like it was an SUV, uh, some SUV, he got, they got pulled over. He was in the car with three other guys that were felons. All of them had been arrested for drugs. The car was searched. And when the police searched the car, they found, uh, they found like 30000 in cash. So finding $30,000 in cash is not illegal. Um... But what the cops did was they didn't charge anybody. They just said, you know, okay, well, we're going to notify your probation officer. So they notified his probation officer. He went back in front of the judge. Probation officer said, listen, the guy was one, out of the jurisdiction. Two, he was hanging out with three other felons, which he's not supposed to be doing. 
and they were all had drug convictions and $30,000 was found inside of the vehicle. He hasn't been charged with anything. But they used that to go ahead and violate him. And they, they gave him, I think they gave him like about 18 months. Might have been 12 months. But I think they gave him 18 months. And they said, when you get out, we're going to quash your paper. But the fact of the matter is, he had to go back to prison for a year to 18 months. Just because he happened to be in the car with three other guys. Now, look, they were probably doing the, a drug deal or something. And he just didn't get caught. Okay, I know. I know that. The judge knows that. The point is, is that they can use pretty much anything. For instance, if I got into a vehicle and the car got pulled over and it was searched, and let's say there was a gun, the guy with me had a gun. One, as a being a, a felon, hanging out with someone that has a, a weapon, unless that person is willing to say the weapon is his, and I have, didn't even know the weapon was there, I could get charged with something called constructive possession, which means I had constructive possession of a weapon. I didn't have the weapon, but they can allude to the fact or basically tell the judge or the jury, whatever, that he had the gun for me. Like that was really my gun or I told him to carry a gun because I couldn't have it. Like, guys will have their girlfriend go get a gun and keep it in her purse, but really, that's their gun. You can get three to five years for that as a felon. You don't even have to have the gun. The point is, is that if I got into a car, some guy got pulled over, that guy had a gun, the police officer knows I'm on federal probation because it's going to come up, and he notifies my probation officer, my probation officer. Federal court... That's in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's the wrong district. So my responsibility, or the responsibility of my attorney, is in response to that lawsuit to say, this is not the proper venue based on the statute because we don't have any connection with the Eastern District of Virginia. And you would file a motion to dismiss the case for improper venue. And the case would be dismissed. Now, a way to respond to that would be either to say that there are connections with the Eastern District of Virginia. So I've said I live in the Western District of Virginia. But what if this accident happened in Richmond, Virginia? Then Richmond is a proper venue because venue can be based on where I'm from or where things happened. So if things happened in the Eastern District, and I live in the Western District, you can choose which one you want to sue me in. That's your choice as, a, as the plaintiff. So I can move to dismiss. The plaintiff might respond, you're wrong. Uh, the accident happened in Richmond, so we can stay here. Another way that you will be studying venue, or another attribute of venue that you're going to study, is transfer. So you may have been sued in the Eastern District of Virginia, in my example. But what if I prefer the convenience of litigating in Charlottesville? I can file a motion to transfer the case from the Eastern District to the Western District. But I can only do that if the Western District would have been an initial proper venue to begin with. So venue and transfer are important 
concepts that you're going to learn. So these topics collectively, personal jurisdictions, which I cover first, other professors may cover second, subject matter jurisdiction, venue, and related to venue is change of venue or transfer. Those are the topics that deal with where this case is going to be litigated. You will likely spend the first half of civil procedure covering those topics. At least in my course, that's what we get right into up to the uh, fall break in October is getting finished with venue and transfer. Again, other professors may do things in different sequence. It doesn't matter. Uh, everyone takes their own uh, approach. So that's dealing with the where a lawsuit can be brought. Now another topic that comes next typically in the sequence is something called choice of law. Now this is going to be covered with varying degrees of detail by different professors and I'm going to cover it only briefly but you'll hear something called the Erie Doctrine. You'll learn more about that uh, in your first year courses. Uh, but the bottom line is, once we have started litigating this case, which law, as, as between state and federal law, are we going to apply to this dispute? And the bottom line here is, if we have a simple car accident where I'm alleging negligence, that's a state law issue. There's no federal law of negligence that's relevant to this dispute. But if I've got some procedural law, that needs to be applied to this case, that's going to come from federal law. That's basically what Erie Doctrine is about. It can get much more complex than that, but the choice of law uh, aspect of the case, federal versus state, is something that you may touch on. There's another aspect of choice of law that I don't really touch on, most civil procedure professors don't touch on, or touch on it very briefly, but it has its own course, which is called conflicts of laws. And that's when you're trying to decide which state's law applies to a dispute. Is it Virginia law? Is it Texas law? Is it Kansas law? There are principles that are taught in their own class called conflicts uh, that you can learn. Those are typically not covered in the civil procedure class. So that's choice of law. Now, getting into the how portion of the life of a case. The next step here would be something referred to as the pleadings. The pleadings are the physical things that you have to do and file and create to initiate a case. So once you've made this determination we're going to be in federal court. It's going to be in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's where I'm going to file my lawsuit. What does that mean? All right. What you have to do to file a lawsuit is you have to file a complaint. So you have to draft a complaint. What does that entail? You'll look at complaints in your first year civil procedure class. There are rules that govern what a complaint must say. It has to set forth the jurisdiction of the court, the claim that you... If you've been charged 
for driving under the influence of a prescription drug. It's important that you get a copy of your lawful prescription because that's good ammunition, at least for your attorney, to argue with the prosecutor that you were only following doctor's orders. And sometimes a sympathetic prosecutor may reduce the charge and allow you to plead to a lesser charge unless, of course, your driving was very erratic and dangerous, which is going to make it harder for your attorney to negotiate a favorable negotiation. Finally, you have the right to seek a retest of your blood to confirm whether or not your blood had the threshold limits for prosecution in the state of Nevada. And ask them if they will allow you to be an authorized user on those accounts. They do not have to even give you the credit card, so there's very little risk to them. The next thing that I did to increase my credit score that you can do is you need to get some of that bad credit off of your credit report. You've got to start cleaning up your credit report. So one of the things that I learned is that you could get errors or omissions or things like that on your credit report off of it. Because what I learned was that the burden of proof was on the person that reported it. So in other words, if I had a charge off with AT&T for a cell phone that I didn't pay, the burden of proof was be on AT&T to prove that it was me and to prove that I still owed the debt. And if they did not verify it, it would have to be removed off of my credit report. Well, you can do the same thing. You, once you have the copy of your credit report, as I've already told you to do, when you have all of the accounts, it's very simple to just go through them and find any inaccuracies, any errors, anything that you could dispute to get that off of your credit report. You need to find any inaccuracies, any errors, or any misrepresentations. Or if it's something that you see on your credit report that you just don't recognize or you don't recall, you can also get that removed. So you can start getting bad credit deleted off of your credit report by starting to file some of those disputes and by locking up your credit. The next thing you can also get off of your credit is inquiries. Many times when we apply for things, people will pull our credit and they will pull it many, many times with different lenders. You may go to apply for a car, for example, and they may shop your loan through all of these different companies, and each of those companies is giving you hard inquiries. You literally can take it into your own hands and start to get those hard inquiries removed from your credit report. I've literally made a video about this and I'm going to put a link in there on how to remove those hard inquiries because it is amazing and it is something that you need to do and this is how you will get even more points. What happens with those hard inquiries is it's probably costing you about five points for each one where you got declined from and if you can get those inquiries removed Again, they'll remove from themselves after 25 months, okay, because it has to stay up there for two years. After 25 months, they'll automatically fall off your credit report. But if you want to get those removed sooner, you can go ahead by doing that and following the process that I outlined for you 
And again, I made a whole video for you. So you want to start cleaning up that credit, removing um, any bad credit and errors, omissions, misrepresentations, things you don't represent, things that you don't recall. And then last but not least, disputing and removing all of those hard inquiries and getting that credit report cleaned up. Okay, and last but not least, like I said, I was going to give you a big secret on how you would never have to worry about personal credit again and do all of what Noel did. So like I said, I have great personal credit right now, but I had terrible personal credit a couple of years ago. I was in a situation where I didn't know anything about personal credit, but more importantly, I didn't know about business credit. One of the things that has changed my personal credit situation forever is the fact that now I have a strong business credit profile for all of my businesses. I'm able to access hundreds of thousands, actually millions for some of my business in business funding using my business credit profile. This doesn't go on my personal credit report. As I use those business credit cards, my score is not going all up and down like it was when I was using my personal credit cards. And now I'm in a situation where I really don't even have to touch my personal credit. My business credit handles everything that I need. Additionally, when it comes to business credit, the limits are so much more higher. With personal credit, oftentimes, if you get a Capital One car, for example, they may only give you $1,000. But with a Capital One business credit card, they'll start you off with $5,000 where they would have probably just started you off with a thousand with the personal one. So again, the limits, the amounts, everything are so much higher. It's a different world and you really want to step into the world of business credit. First, follow the steps that I said and fix that personal credit. But please take a look and learn about business credit. I've made a ton of videos teaching you all about this absolutely free. Let's get on that bandwagon. So there you have it. You now know how to increase your credit score by 200 points. I've given you all of the steps, all of the different things that I've done and told you exactly how to do it. Make sure you click that like button. Make sure you subscribe to my channel. Please click that little notification bell so you do not miss any of this content that I am bringing to you every single weekday absolutely free. I want to make sure that you have all of the tools, all of the resources, and all of the knowledge that you need to be successful. This is Noel to your success. I teach uh, joint ventures and brokering method, right? So just like me and you actually spoke about this. Yeah. So what I do is- That's the is, car out there, the Carvette. Car right, that thing gonna that's go, yours. that thing, that's hotcakes. That's yours. So, you know, I meant, you to, bring you, I meant to bring you a keychain, so I normally get this keychain to people who get into the, the brokering or joint venture thing with no me, more. just to make sure you know you're part of the clique now. It's I was, going, like a Rockefeller chain. Is that, boy? Like a chain. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, we good, I like that. Yo, we gotta get them. <laughs> We got to get them. Everybody who got a chain on, they mess with Mitch, and Mitch got the whips going Straight crazy. Like All right, so long story short, so 
I get into joint ventures with people and I broker with other people who have rental car agencies. Mm -hmm. So you have Matty J on here. We do this together as well. So he has cars that I use in my network as well and rent out as my own. How do you do this? You learn the game, you master it, you learn the ins and outs of it, then you can talk the talk, also walk the walk. So you know what you're doing if something happens, right? Mm -hmm. So if something happens to this car, I know exactly what to do because I've been running it for five years. So if I take yours, I know exactly what to do as well. I know the terminology to say, I know the, the contracts to have, I know the mechanics to know, I know the tire people, I know everything I need to know. So if I go tell you what I do, mm -hmm. what you gonna do? You are gonna be like, I'm giving my keys to Mitch. Sure, I'm gonna let him run it. If, if me and you broker a deal, um, I know what you want minimum per day. I charge on top of that. We both making money, everybody's happy. If I got five years of clientele, why would you not? Why would you wanna sit there and build up your own clientele? Well, you can just give it to me and go work and go have a, a, a dope podcast coming here and you can go have to worry about the cars because Mitch worried about it because he got a whole staff and a whole lot out by the airport that can have as many cars as you need. You feel wow. what I'm saying? Let me ask you real quick. With this network of cars, mm -hmm. what do you think, and not in your, in your personal pockets, but what's like some of your revenue per month from this car rental business? Me, uh, now I'm doing $200,000 a month, and it's getting pretty consistent. So uh, on the average, I average like about 120000 and that's what my CPA says. Mm. That's what the revenue is looking like, and that's just because uh, I'm getting a lot of bookings. Like, I don't just have the car sitting there picking up cobwebs. We get creative. We get creative. We go to golf courses. We hand out pamphlets. We make it make sense. Y'all doing the work. Man, we doing tours. We doing rental, uh, luxury rental car tours. I get deals with the uh, the valet companies in front of the W, leave them parked in front of the W, and then let them know, hey, look, if you tell them the, they can drive this for with no deposit, how do they drive with no deposit? I'm be in the front seat with them. I let them get in it, charge them 150. We take a tour around 400 in a Lambo. Then they get in the rentals. They passing out. Oh, when I came to the W in Atlanta, this dude, Mitch, he had me with the Lamborghini and the I-8. Man, come on, bro. I get creative. All right. So that, that I, I wanted to, like, give people, like, where we are today. But now I got to take them back how we started. Okay. I got to I gotta take them way back. Because he keeps telling people he worked for me. And he, Oh, yeah, I work for this me. guy. This is like my low-key, my ex-boss. <laughs> this is fire. <laughs> hey, and I'm on my boy podcast going crazy. That's okay, weird. Okay, just, just walk, walk me through where you were. Okay, so um, clearly I used to work for this guy, but when I worked for him, I, I had a nine-to-five as well. So Working I, where? I used to work for the city of Atlanta. I used to do corrections, mm. and I could fight, so I used to teach the defensive tactics as well. Mm. So I teach people how to shoot. And I teach you how to fight. And I was in the jail and I was like miserable. Like I'm getting a lot of mental wear and tear because mm. you see a lot of horrible truths when you work in a jail, man. Mm. So I was working 16 hour shifts. Like they do mandatory voluntary overtime. So I'm working 16 hour shifts. Uh, what were some of the things that really affected you walking, like just working there? Working in the jail, just seeing like how, how many of our people are there and they basically remind you of like slavery didn't end for real. Like this is where it is because you get to see that they got these work details that they put the inmates on and they go out on the street and they do things. They go to the cities and they go to the bando houses and fix them up, trim the hedges. They go out on the side of the highway, pick up the trash. They go out and clean out underneath the pathways where the homeless people stay yep. and they clean all that stuff out. They're doing work literally for free. 
You get what I'm saying? So you can kind of see how the concept of slavery never ended. It's actually, we just numb to it because we don't think about where the people actually go when they go to jail. So I'm seeing that firsthand every day. It's tearing me up. And I'm a thinker. So I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like, you know, it's inhumane anyway. Nobody should really be in jail. It's not even rehabilitative. They're not getting rehab when they go there. They're just going there for a second and just living in a horrible situation. Mm. You get what I mean? And then you get to where I was working at, like they can't even take a shower every day. They got shower days. Just think about not being able as a grown adult, not being able to take showers when you want to. You gotta take when they tell you. You gotta eat when shower they tell days. you. Yeah, it was crazy. It wasn't it was different. So me seeing that every day tore me up. And then I'm associated with police. Right. Now just working for corrections. Right, right. Which is beneficial to me now because I have my badge and when I get pulled over I can show it and I'll get a ticket. <laughs> but it's not beneficial to me when uh I'm associated with, with all the stuff like the Mike Brown mm-hmm. Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin stuff. That stuff happens and you're associated with police. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was dealing with a lot of mental battles. Yeah. So I, I was I was dying for a way to get out. But luckily because I worked at the reason you just have to understand credit cards. You have to understand their systems. Well, I tell people the goal is not, like I don't teach people to just go out and do that. That's just something cool we figured right, out right, and found right, for out. Sure, for sure. So that was one of the cool things, but I tell people is that, like I tell people how to hide their credit card utilization. It's just learning things like that to where we don't pay interest on our credit cards. These are the type of things that we need to know is that like those are the most, those are the, Fascinating things because people go, people charge me to liquidate my credit card. You just told me how to do it for free. Yeah. Literally off, um, I seen people go, hey, I don't know you, but you said this. I did it. It worked. I bought my real estate project, and I didn't have to spend my like going to debt to pay for my my home. Yeah. You three point five percent in the negative before you even go do a deal. Mm. You imagine that you get funded at a hundred thousand, you got to pull a hundred thousand off your credit cards. You three point five to the to the negative before you even go anywhere else. Right. Plus your monthly reoccurring fee. You get me? That's why people lose. Like I tell people, I teach people how to go to where if you were going into real estate and you had a hundred thousand in funding, when you liquidate, you'll be worth a hundred and and five, a hundred and six. So now you have more capital. You're not going negative before you even get into the investment deal. And a lot of times they get into deals. And if you do get a wrong deal, you don't even know how to get out. Right. So I got this. I got this play that I'm working on. Um, it is. A real estate. So I'm, I'll share it with you after. But we're uh, about to buy a building, right? And okay. Let's just say it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars in renovations. Mm-hmm. So I've got a bunch of I've got a because I don't I I use like like you I use my credit card and I pay it off. So I have um, I got about I got about a hundred in um, in you know credit card balance, right? Okay. But, Zero balance, I can charge it up to about a hundred. Okay. So, is there a way to float all this money or use my cards without having to pay all the interest? Is there a way? One, you can hide your credit card utilization, right? And if you hide it, then I can get another card. Is that what you're saying? You can get more cards, but you have to be particular about 
which cards you go out and get depending on what your situation is. See, I put people in a situation before they get to that point to where they don't have to worry about it. Let me bring this up just in case. I'm sorry. So I put people in a position before they get to the point of purchasing to where they're okay, right? Gotcha. Because you're going to have, th there's different credit card types. You have your credit cards that are standard credit cards, meaning you got a $15,000 limit, this is what you have. You have charge cards. Mm -hmm. Your charge cards are going to be the cards that are based off of your spending habit, right? right? So we run our charge card limits up with business to grow our limits to where when it's time to do a deal like that and I need 100000 I have it access. Mm -hmm. Okay, meanwhile, I have my standard cards here that have my regular limits, but with these cards, I set up and I add people on as authorized users. Yeah. So I sell trade lines. Well, now, if I sell trade lines at 650 and I have 10 spots available, that's 6,500 every cycle. How long do you keep them on your card? 60 days. So, it, so you add somebody. Is this something we could talk about? Yeah. Okay. So you add somebody on your trade line for, mm -hmm. let's say, 650 mm -hmm. And every two months, if they want to stay on that. No. They, so you add trade lines last. It's once their credit report is together, depending on what they're looking to go do, you add them last. Okay. It's just, a, it's just you have to know the formula. When you add somebody as an authorized user, it's not, oh, you're going to get excellent credit. You're good to go now. No, you structure a report properly. Add the authorized user on to help with the data points. So once it helps with the data points of your age, your credit report, total number of accounts, your credit utilization, you add them on as an authorized user, last. Now they go and do what they need to do, establish more new accounts. When the trade line gets removed, those accounts season fill the gap for where the trade lines work. Got it. Okay, so I add 10 people on as an authorized user, that's $6,500 every 60 days. If I got three cards, Got it. Got I'm at 18, it. almost 20,000 every 60 days. Okay, so in a situation you go, well, I'm going to go and spend 100,000 on this property. My goal was that get these credit cards together first and get this business flowing. So when you go spend that 100,000, you go, I spend 100,000 here, but I'm not spending my 100,000. Guess what, American Express? Guess what? You know, Barclays. The trade lines that I'm selling on these ones, pay that card back. So now I'm not out of pocket. Got it, got it, got Anything. And that's why you gotta wait for the trial, you gotta wait to see Melly's defense, and we'll see what happens. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Nevada has concealed carry reciprocity with about 30 states. This means that if you have a current invalid CCW permit from one of those states, you may lawfully carry a concealed handgun in Nevada. For a list of the states that Nevada has reciprocity with, refer to the description beneath this video. When people with a reciprocal state CCW permit move to Nevada, 
their out-of-state permits remain valid for only 60 days into their Nevada residency. So new residents should apply for a Nevada CCW permit as soon as possible after moving to avoid a gap in their gun rights. Under NRS 202.350, it is a Category C felony in Nevada to carry a concealed weapon without a current and valid CCW permit. The penalties include one to five years in the Nevada State Prison, and the judge can impose a fine of up to $10,000. But if you have a current and valid CCW permit, and you simply forgot to bring it with you while you're carrying a concealed firearm, then you face only a civil fine of $25. If you've been arrested, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group will do everything possible to get your charges reduced or dismissed. So you talking about a charge becoming a charge becoming an even bigger charge, man. So, I mean, as the backup officer showed up, they said that five-year-old form was trying to fight with them, and he was trying to, they got into a tussle, and all the officers had to hold five-year-old form down. Now, a Fort Lee EMS checked uh, five-year-old form at headquarters for his injuries after he was apprehended and the altercation ceased. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, one of the officers was actually taken to a, a hospital for minor wounds. Now, the police are charging a Fabio form with weapons possession, having a defaced firearm, resisting arrest, and they booked him in the Bergen County Jail, which is no happy place, you know what I mean? And that's where he is as of today. Now, it looks like Fabio Foreign is going to have his first appearance in, in court today in the Central Judicial Processing Court in Hackensack. Now, it's been crazy because Fabio Foreign has had a lot of run-ins with the law ever since he's been famous, man. Don't forget he had the little situation back in October, and he's actually been released for that pending trial, and they're saying that, you know, He's being, he's being accused of some crazy stuff with that, man. We ain't going to get into all that. It's looking like Fabio Foreign is just waiting for his next court date, and we're going to see where this goes because he's already got pending charges, man. This is only complicating the things. Now, to be honest, Fabio Foreign walking around with a tool on him, it all I almost understand it, man. Anytime a superstar rapper or a rapper with a little bit of fame is caught with a weapon, especially in today's rap game, man, and you, you, especially if you rap that street stuff, I almost understand it, you know what I mean? Because, you know, the, the rap game going crazy right now. Let's be, let's be honest, man. You know, it's a lot going on right now. But, man, to have an unregistered firearm with the serial number scraped off, man, it ain't looking good for Fabio Foreign, man. It's looking bad, actually, man. So, Fabio Foreign looks like he's going to be doing mad, he's looking at mad time. We just did a story like a day ago about Fabio Foreign getting into it with somebody back in his hometown, man, back in Brooklyn. They were getting into it, and it looked like, you know, 
maybe that sparked the reason that he thought he had to protect himself. I don't know. I'm not his attorney, so I ain't going to be putting out any, you know, shooting any bail or whatever. But to be honest, what do you guys think? Does it look like Fabio Forum knew that he had a weapon on him? That's why he kept pushing when the officers asked him for his information? Or do you think maybe this is just a situation where he got caught up and he was just slipping, you know, he did something that he wasn't supposed to, and he'll just have to do the time when it comes to him. Now, with that, this being your boy, Big Man, please do me a favor. Make sure you hit that like button, make sure you hit that subscribe button, and make sure you hit that notification bell, so that way you get a notification every time I drop this hot content, and we out of here. Peace. Perhaps no state has been more affected by the foreclosure crisis than the state of Nevada. And in the wake of the foreclosure crisis, what we're seeing is that law enforcement has really ramped up investigation as to what the root causes or what they feel the root causes of the mortgage crisis are. So right now in the state of Nevada, we're seeing a lot of prosecutions where allegations of mortgage fraud come into play. And mortgage fraud encompasses a wide range of scenarios involving deceptive mortgage practices. It can involve false information provided to a lender. It can involve artificially high appraisals that help to uh, entice the bank to lend a large amount of money for the purchase of a home. It can involve straw buyers, all of which are prosecuted in Nevada under the title of mortgage fraud. Here in Nevada, one common example of mortgage fraud is what is known as a false loan modification scheme. This often involves someone trying to prey on a distressed homeowner by perhaps offering to reduce principal avoid foreclosure, and allow someone to stay in their home. Oftentimes, that person will take money up front, but then not do anything for that distressed homeowner, and they often go into foreclosure anyway. Another common example of mortgage fraud here in Nevada is using false information on loan applications. Now, today, lending standards have become much more strict, and... Uh, lenders will want to verify your income and your assets and your debts and, and your taxes be, before authorizing a loan. But back in the day, but before the market crashed, there were lots of mortgages that were issued based on what was called stated income. And uh, these sort of get, gained a term in the industry, liar loans. Liar loans because people would lie. They, they would lie about their income. They would lie about the assets that they had for collateral. They would lie about their debts and, and liabilities. And none of this w w was really verified. And what I think a lot of people didn't realize or, or didn't sort of pay attention to at the time is that they were signing under penalty of perjury that all of this information was true and correct. And today what we're seeing is state and federal authorities going back and prosecuting many of these people for mortgage fraud, for perjury, based on this misinformation uh, that they put in their applications. And the reality of the situation is that 
a lot of these uh, uh, listing agents and and uh, escrow officers and and lenders had an incentive to push these deals through. They wanted their commissions, and so they would really coach the loan applicants in what they needed to say to meet the lending standards to get the loan even if that meant providing misinformation. And the culture in the industry sort of became that that this was just how things were done. These were how deals were made. This is how people got their homes. This is how people made their investments. Everybody was doing it. It wasn't seen as something that was unethical or illegal. And people who did provide misinformation and perjure themselves never imagined that they would someday face the consequences of being prosecuted for a felony and going to prison for what they did. Straw buying usually involves a situation where someone wants to buy a home, but they lack good credit. So usually that person will recruit someone else, often known as the straw buyer, with good credit to stand in for them in order to obtain a loan from a bank. That person can find themselves facing bank fraud because they deceived the bank into providing them a loan for someone who actually did have bad credit. It's not uncommon to see a straw buyer scheme where the straw buyer is really more of an unwitting a victim to the sophisticated scheme of, of other players. So uh, a straw buyer may be offered several thousand dollars to sign documents for the purchase of a property where there were third parties like the buyer or the mortgage lender or the realtor that had a lot more to gain than the straw buyer. And the straw buyer is the one that's being prosecuted and made the scapegoat for the entire transaction. The main statute here in Nevada with regard to mortgage fraud is NRS 205.372, which makes it a felony to be involved in a deceptive